is uh, my parents were married when they were 16 years old, right? I can't even imagine that. 16 years old, getting married. My, I'll, I'll, my parents had, I was born when they were 17, right? And uh, my mom ended up remarrying later on as they separated early. I mean, how can you be married at that young of age, right? And, uh, and they, my mom ended up having six other kids, grew up in Casa Grande, Arizona, uh, and, uh, and big family. And my dad ended up getting remarried, and he's got five kids. Uh, the, the youngest of my brother and sisters, are they're about six and five. So Olivia, my oldest daughter, is older than to, to her, her uncle and aunt, right? And so all together, I have 11 siblings. Grew up in a huge family, oldest of all of them. And the uh, w- reason I can relate with Jephthah is I grew up with feelings of, of rejection. And, and I didn't understand those things at, at the time, but I feel like the Lord's been working and, and moving in my heart and helping me understand emotion. Man, I, I, I just haven't understood emotion. The only emotion I've known in my life is angry. <laughs> but I, I feel like God's been uh, doing a work in my heart to help me understand. But uh, I had feelings of rejection, of, of not being good enough. I think those are things that a lot of guys struggle with, right? Uh, Those partly because uh, my father wasn't in my life until I was in fifth grade. And uh, my stepfather also reinforced these feelings of of not being good enough, right? Being the outcast, a a failure, maybe a little bit abandoned, right? And, and, And I'm not here to trash talk on my... My father and my stepfather, I thank God for them. They played a great role in my life. I I learned a lot from them. My stepfather raising me when he didn't have to, right? And uh, and he was a hard worker. And even my dad, you know, when he did come into my life, he was very loving to me. But I had these these feelings, and I I always felt like I was was trying to prove myself, right? I've I've, I've had this drivenness, this desire to show that I'm, I'm good enough. And I think that's exactly where, where Jephthah's at, where he's trying to prove himself. He's trying to earn his way into the family. He's, he's an outcast. You know, maybe you can identify him as well. Maybe you've grown up with feelings of with insecurity and abandonment and, and rejection, and I think that's exactly where Jephthah's at. Let me pray before we get going, and we're going to look at his life. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these for the book of Judges, Lord. I thank you for these real stories and just and, and getting into the messiness of life and, and how we can be revealed in it and learn from it, Lord. I thank you above all that there, there's hope in Christ Jesus and in your love and in your faithfulness in all of this, Lord. Thank you for that. I thank you that you don't turn your back on your people. Bless this time, Lord. Teach us. Reveal us. Help us find our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as we get in this, Judges, we've seen week after week that that there's these cycles of sin that the the people of Israel are going through, which starts with with sin. And so as we enter into the cycle, as expected, in chapter 10, verse 6, we see the people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And it lays out this long list of, of idols that they'd turn to. The first time we ever see such a comprehensive list. And, and what you'll notice about that list is that these are idols of the nations who have enslaved them. Idols of the nations who have oppressed them. Or who are about to enslave and oppress them. So they've, they've chosen these, these oppressive little gods. Right? It's a reminder that idolatry is slavery. Right, And then we see servitude. They end up in servitude. God angrily, angrily hands them over to the, to, into the hands of the Ammonites and to the, the Philistines, which the Philistine oppression continues into to next week we're going to see. And in verse 8 it tells us this, that it's gotten worse, that they've been crushed, crushed and oppressed for 18 years. Extreme suffering. Worse than ever before, and it's been really bad, we've been seeing, right? And it's gotten worse, right? And this, so it's telling us how they're being crushed by this nation. It's horrible. And then you see supplication for the first time in verse 10. In verse 10, it reads, The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, for the first time, they're acknowledging that they've, they've, They've turned away from Yahweh, which if you don't know Yahweh, Yahweh is another a name for God. They've turned away from Yahweh. They've rejected Him. And so they're acknowledging that they've forsaken Him for the first time. And then verses 11 through 14 tell us Yahweh's response, which I'll summarize for you because we have a lot of ground to cover. Verse 11 and 12 give us evidence of His, his faithfulness. He, he shows them how he's, how he's delivered them over and over and over from one nation after another. And then in verse 13, he tells us how afterwards that they've continually turned away from him after his deliverance. Right? So I deliver you, and you guys turn away from me. And therefore, he, he says, I will save you no more. I will save you no more is what God says. And in verse 14, go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Right? Hey. Let all these little gods that you think are, are so great save you, right? Go at it. Have fun with them. They can't save you, right? They're powerless. And, and it brings you to have to ask the question, why? Why is this? It seems like a harsh response from God because it almost seems like they're, they're repenting. But, but their problem is, is they want God to end their suffering but they don't want to forsake their idols, right? God, stop the oppression. Stop this crushing that's happening to us, but let, him, let me hold on to my idols, all right? Just, just make it all work out for me, God. They don't want to change. That's what the Bible calls worldly grief or sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death, right? So there's this godly grief that, that leads to repentance, right? The forsaking of your idols, turning to God and genuinely crying out. But there's also this worldly sorrow, right? Where, where you're, you have this grief and it leads to death because you don't really repent, right? You're just upset about the consequences of sin. You're just upset about the consequences that the idolatry, the enslavement has brought you. 
and don't want to truly tr- turn to God. And so that's, that's their problem, right? And by God's grace, this is part of God's grace. We have to know this, that, that God will not allow us to be comfortable with our idols, right? He'll allow pain and, and grief, and it's His grace because He loves us. He wants us to see that those things can't save us, that we have to forsake them and, and turn to Him for, for deliverance. One time, uh, Joel, a long time ago, Joel Josue and I uh, had this guy come to, for us to, uh, to us for counseling. And this guy was in agony. He was in pain. I mean, he was crying. He was telling us how he had cheated on his wife and had gotten an STD. And he was in extreme agony. Now, nowhere in that time did he talk about God and, and wanting God to save him and change him and, and bring healing in his marriage. All he talked about was his pain, and he wanted out of the pain. To the extreme of, he wanted to go get castrated, right, to get out of this pain. Right? That's, that's the extreme picture of worldly grief, right? He wasn't repentant and wanting to change, and, 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 and uh, you know, unfortunately, Joel told me he ran into this guy the other day, and he got a divorce, right? It wasn't repentance. It was, it was worldly grief, worldly sorrow in his life. So this, uh, so this leads to a second cry out from Israel, which actually looks like repentance. And it's hard to say whether it's really repentance. And, I, and some, I, I read a lot of commentaries. Some commentaries say, yes, they actually repented. Some say no. And sometimes it's, <laughs> it's not so clear. It's hard to say because sin is so messy. So here's a couple of positive things that come out of their repentance. Let's read uh, verses 15 through 16. It says, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So right, you see this first part. They, they desire God regardless of the outcome. That's, that's good. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So another positive is they put away their idols. Right? This, they're serving God. This, this looks good. And God became impatient. So it looks like genuine repentance. Now, the thing that causes me to, to doubt whether this is true repentance or not, I, I, I'm not, I can't say one way or the other, is, is after this, you would expect now, God to raise up a deliverer as he's done in in every other case. But in this case, God doesn't raise up a deliverer. The people go out and actively seek for their own deliverer, right? They're looking for someone to to save them as, as the Ammonites are coming to make war against them. And so it's, I mean, we've all done this, right? We're praying, we're praying, we're crying out, God, God, help me. Provide for me. Would you, would you deliver me? Work in this area of my life. And then, and then we don't wait on God's timing, right? We just, we just say, all right, I'm going to take control. I'm going to fix this. And, and it usually creates a mess, right? When we, we take it in our own hands. And, and, and that's where we enter into Jephthah, right? That's where we see salvation part of the cycle. Verse 11 uh, chapter 11, verse 1 tells us he's a, he's a mighty warrior and the son of a prostitute. It tells us uh, basically his, his father had an affair, right? And had him 
in, a, in an adulterous relationship. And, in verse, and it tells us that when his brothers grew up, they kicked him out of the house. They say to him in, in, in verse 2, you shall, have, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Right? You're not part of this family. You're just the son of another woman. Right? I, I imagine the fi- family dynamic growing up in this household that, that Jephthah being there is a, is a constant reminder of their, their father's affair. Right? And, and, and so they hate Jephthah. They hate what their father has done. Instead of forgiving their father and, and loving and, and accepting Jephthah into the family, they're always rejecting him. Like They don't want him there. He's not part of the family. And then you got to imagine now Jephthah in this household. Think about him growing up. He, his whole life, he's the outcast. He's the rejection, rejected one. He's trying to prove himself. He's trying to be part of the family. He's trying to earn their favor. And so there's this, this dysfunction happening there in this family until he's, he's kicked out. He's kicked to the curb. And it tells us, that Jephthah flees away to a far-off land where he gathers around himself a, a, some, some un, uh, unworthy men, worthless men is what he calls them. Right? So what happens to, to young men who, who have no family, who have no structure? They, they want to be powerful. They want to be successful. They want to prove themselves. Where do they gather? They gather in, in gangs. Right? They find a, a brotherhood. So Jephthah basically ends up being a gang leader or a cartel leader, right? El Chapo Guzman is Jephthah, right? This is like ISIS, right? This is why ISIS is growing and and gaining more and more men is because these these men are gathering around worthless men who are looking, who have maybe who've been rejected, outcasts, failures in their society, and now now they can go and have some power and, and some money and a woman. That's what's happening here. And in verse 4, it tells us the Ammonites made, 11-4, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And so Israel's, they're scrambling, like, who's going to fight for us? Who's going to lead us into battle? Who's going to deliver us? And they go to Jephthah. They turn to Jephthah, right? You turn to a, a cartel leader who has a military to uh, run your nation, you're going to be in big trouble. And that's what happens. Jephthah, verse 7, he says to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you, you come to me now when you're in distress? Jephthah's response is, is, is a similar response to God's response, right? God's been rejected. Jephthah's been rejected, and the people are, are scrambling, looking for anyone to help them. And so what, what basically what Jephthah sees is, is a great opportunity in front of him, right? He's got an opportunity now to finally be part of the family, to finally prove himself to be powerful and successful, to earn his family's favor, to gain love and acceptance. Right? This is his opportunity. Right? I'm not just the reject son of a prostitute. I can lead Israel. And so Jephthah, what we see this pattern in his life is that he is an expert negotiator. Expert. Right? So the first negotiation we see is with these leaders. Uh, and he promises, hey, if Yahweh gives me victory, then I'm going to be your leader. I'm going to be the leader of, of Israel. 
And second, after that, after they agree to those terms, he negotiates with the king of the Ammonites. So instead of foolishly running into, into war, right, he, he negotiates. Jephthah's a, a survivor. He's had to learn how to negotiate to get around and to make it in life. And, and he, basically, he, he makes very com- compelling arguments. He's trying to keep peace. And he, uh, he even goes to expose that the Ammonites in their war are unjust. And he even, in this negotiation, demonstrates some faith. After the king wouldn't respond to, uh, to his reasonable arguments, in verse 27, he responds to the king by saying, the Lord, the judge, will decide between the Israel and Ammonites, basically. Right? He's basically saying, well, all right, we can't resolve this by words, so let's let the Lord resolve it. Right? Well, he, he understands that God is the judge that God is the one that brings justice, that God will decide that, the outcome, right? If God's with Israel and he's keeping his promises, God will deliver them. And so there's this, this sign of faith, which is such so weird, you know, that, so there's just, just this messy situation of, of some faith in there and trying to do it on your own, and is it repentance? Is it not repentance? Whatever it is, it's messy. And it tells us that after he negotiates with the Ammonite king, that he negotiates with God, right? He treats God like he treats every other relationship in his life. He tries to negotiate. And this is where it goes very wrong for him. Now, the, the purpose of this, he, he makes this vow with God. Basically, he says that, God, if, if you will, you know, give me victory in this, that out whatever comes out of my house when I go home, he'll offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. It's a tragic vow, and the, and the purpose is to, to manipulate God into giving him victory. He needs this victory, right? If, he, if he's going to prove he's, he's not a reject, he's not an outcast, if he's going to gain love and acceptance, he has to have this victory. So he's trying to negotiate with God. Now come in, now. This is, unfortunately, this tragic vow is the thing that he will be remembered for the most. Verse 29 tells us that the, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Without Jephthah even knowing it, we know God had decided to, to work through him. Uh, Jephthah uh, doesn't have the, we don't see the experience that where God speaks directly with Jephthah as he did with, with the other Judges like Gideon we saw last week. So he doesn't know that, that God's with him. And I, I think it's possibly because God didn't choose him, but God uh, chose to use him anyway. And so God's going to deliver Israel despite his foolish vows. And so what this shows here is that we can have God's spirit and still make all kinds of foolish decisions, Right? Just because we have the Spirit of God, all, all Christians are, are temples of the Holy Spirit. And, and you, as well as anyone, know that you make all kinds of foolish decisions, right? We make sinful decisions. And, and, and the good news here is, is that God still uses us, right? That God can use deeply flawed people like you and I. I mean, think about that, right? God can use deeply flawed people just like Jephthah, 
cartel leader, outcast, reject, seen as worthless, and God decides to use him. And, and God does use him. God subdues the Ammonites, it tells us. It doesn't tell us about the, the whole battle, but we see God does work through him. And we see the climax of the story now. That's not the climax. The climax is now the fulfillment of the vow. It's in chapter 11, 34 through 40. It, it, the scene is, you got to imagine this scene, right? He's coming home from the battle. you got to think he's a little, little worried, a little anxious, all right? Who's going to come out of, out of his house? Who is he going to offer up as a sacrifice to the Lord? And you got to know he's looking for a, it's going to be a person. And tragically, it tells us that, that when he gets home, his, his beautiful only daughter, one daughter, only child, comes out with a tambourine, and, and she's dancing, and she's happy to see her daddy's home, right? He survived the war, and she's coming with, with open arms, and, and I, can, I can only imagine this, right? When I come home, my kids act like, they, like I've been off to, to war for six months, but they're running, and, and they're jumping on me and, and hugging me. Daddy, daddy, I love, uh, that's my favorite thing, by the way, is right, coming home and, and them hugging me and jumping on me. And, and that's what happens here. And he, he tells his daughter of, of the vow that he made. And there, after this two-month period of mourning, right, his daughter accepts the reality of what's going to happen. He, unfortunately, right, he had all this time. Two months she goes off into mourning. He had all this time to to change his mind, to realize that this was foolish, to realize that, that God doesn't want this vow from him. But he goes and he carries out this unthinkable, this despicable, abominable act. And it tells us that in verse 39, 11, 39, he did to her as his, his vow, which he vows, which he vowed, right? He sacrifices his only daughter as if God would be pleased with this, as if this is something that, that God would desire from him, right? To, to think that, that Yahweh would be pleased with such an abomination shows that he doesn't know Yahweh, or he doesn't know his word, right? Where Leviticus 20, 2 through 5 tells us that child sacrifice is an abomination and punishable by death, Right? Deuteronomy 12.31, if he would have known God's word, he, he would have known that it's an abominable thing that the Lord hates. Which just goes to show that the, the depravity, right? The, the brokenness, the, the spiritual dryness that Israel is experiencing at this time. And sadly, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, the story gets worse. It doesn't get better from there. It gets worse. The Ephraimites, which is another tribe, another family in Israel, they're, they're upset. They come bearing arms. They're, they're upset at, that they weren't invited to the battle. Right? Why weren't we invited to take part in, in the glory of this, this victory? Right? They're, they're angry. These are the same uh, group that came to Gideon. They were upset because uh, Gideon didn't call, call them to fight with him as well. Right? Who... They, they don't want to accept this. Even think about this. They don't, who, who's this reject 
son of a prostitute, worthless man, think he's going to be our leader? Right? Why does he get the credit? Now, you would expect this, the negotiator to negotiate, right? That, that's what he's been doing. That's the, that's the pattern of his life. But no, hey, he's got power. He's finally been accepted. He's, he's the leader now. No negotiating, right? They're a threat. They're a threat to, to his finally being accepted, right, to being part of the family. And, and it tells us that he attacks and he kills 42,000 of his own people. Kills 42,000 Ephraimites, right? Israel's self-appointed judge, right? That's Israel. That's who they have chosen. Kills the people he's supposed to deliver. He doesn't act with the, with the same kind of diplomacy that he did with the, with the Ammonites. And so we see Israel's reached a new low. And unfortunately, it gets lower and lower from here, guys. <laughs> uh, the cycle, the cycle that we would we would expect the next cycle would be would be the that there would there be some rest, right? That there'd be this silence part of the cycle, but there is no there is no rest in the land after this, no rest, right? They're not delivered. It it ends with a, uh, telling us that that Jephthah judged Israel six years in verse seven of chapter 12, and then he died and was buried in Gilead. So there's no rest. So how can we apply this story of Jephthah? I have uh, four things. And I think, you know, I think that, uh, just to tell you, I think there's some very good news for us in the middle of all this. Right? The first thing we learn is that idols enslave us. Right? Idols enslave us. Right? Every time Israel worships something, right, it ends up oppressing them. That nation ends up oppressing them. And so idols demand more and more of us, and they lead to more and more enslavement. Right? It shows the insanity of idolatry, yet it also shows that, hey, we're just like Israel. Right? We do the, the same thing. We're prone to the same sin and, and temptation. And I think like Israel, in this instance, when we, we start suffering because of our idols, we cry out for God to deliver us. But, but it's like we, we want to, just like Israel, we want to cling to the idol, right? And God, just take away the pain. Just take away the misery and let me keep my idol. I mean, that's what we do in our, in our, in our lives, right? Let me keep my idol, God. Don't take it, but just, just make it all work out somehow. Right? For example, your idol could be food. It could be your, your stomach. Right? And you could worship that idol, and it, and it can cause you to be overweight and obese and, and diabetic. Right? And you can keep feeding that idol. And then instead of forsaking the idol, we, we just wanna, we want a, a magic fix. Right? Just give me a pill so I can eat whatever I want and and, and still... And, Keep my idol and lose weight, right? And be healthy. And there, there can be many things. It could be relationships. It can be money, right? It can be sexual lust, like the story I told you the other guy, right? He wanted to be able to keep. <laughs> well, I don't know. That guy was 
That was a mess. But uh, he wasn't repentant, right? But true repentance, that's the second point, expresses sorrow over the sin itself and not just the consequences, right? True repentance is, is sorry for the evil and the, the sin itself and not just the consequences. The consequences are just the things that help us see we need to turn and cry out to the Lord. So we, we need to not just have a worldly kind of grief, a worldly kind of sorrow. Like Israel, we need to put away our idols, that's what they did, right? They, they put away their idols. They served the Lord. They cried out for deliverance. God's not the divine enabler, you know, and that's his grace, that God doesn't enable us to continue in our idolatry, in our sin, and just be perfectly happy, right? If, if you're God's people, God's children, God disciplines his children who he loves. And so God will allow that, that pain, that, that difficulty. He, he won't allow our, our idols to, to fulfill us because he wants us to, to forsake them and cry out to him. And if God totally does just let you go, that's scarier, right? Because God does turn people over to their sin, but they're, they're not his children, right? His children he'll hold on to and he'll, and he'll discipline us so that we'll have true repentance in our life. The third thing we see is child sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord, right? It has to be clear that abortion is an abomination. Abortion is an abomination. People are, just like Jephthah, are sacrificing their children to the idols of the culture, right? Comfort, security, uh, convenience, pleasure, so I can keep doing whatever I want to do, right? People are sacrificing children to their idols. And so I want to be, be clear on this, you know, that it's never, abortion's never okay. There's ne- never any exceptions. All human life is valuable. And, I, and so I want to be clear because I know there are Christians get abortions too. Right, I, I talk to the CPC directors, and they tell me Christians go in there and for counseling, and they they want to get abortions too. Right, it's it's, it's fact. So I just wanted to use this to to remind us that and, and and plead with you if you're ever considering this, to to ask for help. Right, if you've made a foolish decision or or vow, just like Jephthah, like it's, it's never too late to to turn around. And, and, and ask for help, and us pastors will be here for you, even if it's a, an embarrassing, shameful thing, a, an adulterous thing, right? It's better to cry out to the Lord and, than, and, and then to fulfill that, do the abomination, right? To do the abominable thing. You have resources at, at CPC that can help you. And uh, I just want to know that FYI, there's grace. There's grace for those of you who have had an abortion. I don't know if you know this, but in Hebrews chapter 11, there's the, basically it's like the faith hall of fame, right? Where, where you read about, you know, uh, Abel and, and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And, and you would never think of it, 
But Jephthah's name is in there. In chapter 11, verse 32, Gideon is in there, and Jephthah and some of the other judges are in there. What? Like, I would have never put Jephthah's name in there, right? How, how could this guy be in there? It's such a, a mess, a wreck. He killed his only daughter. So I would have never put him in there. But the, but the truth is, none of us deserve to be in there either, right? None of us deserve anything from God, and, and we've all sinned, and we've fallen short of the glory of God, and yet God, in His grace, uses these broken, fallen people, people who have done horrible things, and, and God gives His grace to sinners like you and I. And that's, I mean, that's the good news in all this, in this story, that God is gracious and forgiving, right? Even a guy, I mean, David, I mean, all the guys in the Bible, if you go through all the Old Testament, you see a bunch of flawed, broken people who do horrible things. And God is faithful to them, right? And just like, just like Jephthah, we've done some horrible things in our lives, right? We're struggling with them right now, sinful things. We have idols in our life that we just cannot let go of, right? And God is faithful. And God puts his grace and mercy upon people like Jephthah and you and I. And so we need to embrace, this is point four, a, a relationship with God that is by grace. Right? Why would Jephthah make such a foolish vow? Because he didn't know, he didn't know God as a God of grace. Right? He, he sees God as, as one of the, a, 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 just like one of the other pagan gods whose favor can be purchased through, through making these, these foolish vows and, and bold sacrifices. Right? He, he sees like he's got to earn God's favor. He's got to prove himself to God just like he's been trying to prove himself to everyone else in his whole life. Right? Here, here's the, the abandoned one, the outcast, the son of a prostitute trying to prove himself now to God. So he doesn't know God as a, as a God of grace. He's trying to earn his way not only into his family but the, into God's family. And so the good news is that, that we don't have a God who makes us earn our way into, into his family by, by doing big things or making these big promises, right? God doesn't make us earn our way into his family. It's only by God's grace, right? We don't have to prove ourselves to him because he loves us and accepts us in Christ Jesus. God is gracious. And so we don't have anything to prove, no one to prove, and no one to impress, right? We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. That's one of redemption's uh, cultural statements, right? Because God is gracious, we have nothing to prove, no one to impress. Because Jesus Christ, Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life on our behalf, Right? We've lived in fallen, broken lives like Jephthah, experienced a lot of pain in our lives, but Christ lived that perfect life. I mean, he was, he was baptized on our behalf, right? He, he, he was sinless on our behalf. He, he died he, 
the, the death that we deserve to die. Right? He paid the price for us. He was outcast, right? He was the one that was sold away by his own people and rejected by his own people, you know, for us. He became the reject for us to bring us in to the family, right? It's through Jesus that we get into the family, right? So all my life, I've been in even Jephthah, trying to prove ourselves, trying to, trying to do better, trying to succeed, trying to get it all together, right, to show how good I am. And none of that matters to God. Christ Jesus has done it already for us. So whatever you're trying to prove, however you're trying to earn it, however you're trying to get your life together so God will finally accept you, stop it. He accepts us in Christ Jesus, right? He's our deliverer. He's the one that we cling to, right? He accepts us in Christ Jesus with all of our sin, our flaws, our fears, our insecurities. Let me tell you, I, I needed to hear this this week. Sometimes I can get those feelings of, of, of that i, I got to prove myself for some reason. It still happens. And I think God even allowed me to feel some of this yesterday, even in my own life, to re, for, for a reminder for today, right? That Christ is the one that accepts us and, and brings us into his family. Ch- children of God, loved and accepted by the Father, right? That will never be rejected, no matter how, how much you fail, right? God doesn't kick you to the curb, right? Part of the eternal family. Let's pray. Let's remember, let's think about that, Lord. Uh, Jesus, I just thank you, Lord. I, I praise you that for your grace. For any any one of us that are that have have felt that, Lord, we're, we're trying to earn something to prove something, and maybe that we feel guilt and shame over our failures and our shortcomings, and we feel like we got to get it together that, or we need to pay for what we've done. You don't ask us to pay. You don't make us do foolish vows. You love us and accept us like we are. I thank you, Lord, that our name can be written in the book of life. Right? And and you'll write, loved and accepted by Christ Jesus. Right? Person after my own heart, just like you did with David, even though we've, we've done some horrific things. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Pray that we would Know your forgiveness. Help us know it. Help us know the freedom that comes through your love and acceptance. Help us experience the love of of your family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.